Hello and welcome to the Chris Will Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Jeff Michaels and Dr. Jerry Nidig. Nida. I'm saying it right? Nida? Nidig. Nidig. Oh, okay. Dig. All right, here we go. Yep. <laughs> All right. Dig. I dig Nidig. I dig Nidig. All right. Hello and welcome to the Chris Will Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Jerry Nidig and Dr. Jeff Michaels. Uh, we talked about Virginia's scope and practice enhancement, and we talked about the necessity of building key relationships in addition to having merit on your side. It was a great conversation. As always, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. I want to talk about the My Day Multifocal for a second. We had the opportunity to do a preclinical trial with this lens this last summer. And there were a couple things that I thought were really helpful. The first one is that it is different than a lot of the multifocals that we've used before in our practices where patients, especially early emerging presbyopes, really managed the, it didn't cause a lot of additional uh, distance blur for them. And the other thing that was really helpful was, because we've never been involved in a clinical trial before, was to understand uh, the sort of questions that we might ask our patients. And we ask a pa our patients a lot of questions about their patient about their satisfaction with a contact lens, but what we weren't doing was actually having them score that themselves. So one of the parts of this that was really interesting to me was asking patients on a scale of one to 10, how they would score their vision, how they would score their comfort in their current lenses, and then how they would do the same on their uh, new lens. And it showed me a lot of times where patients would say they were happy, might rate their vision as a six or a seven. And, um, and then it also reframed their thinking about their current satisfaction in their lenses and allowed me to open up the door to offering other solutions. So if you haven't tried something like that in your clinical practice, I would encourage you to. And I would also encourage you to try the MyDay Multifocal for your patients. What do you think about your macular degeneration supplements for patients in category one through category four? Do you feel like you have a really good way to distinguish between what type of supplement you're using and why you're using it? I'd encourage you to check out the evidence behind MacuHealth. We've used it in our practice for a number of years now, and we have a real great solution for patients in category three and four, as well as supplements for patients who don't need the full AREDS formulation. We've been really impressed in our practice by the way it performs and also by the patient acceptance of those supplements. And MacuHealth has also been a great partner in our practice to help us with resources and tools to help us describe and define why their supplements are more bioavailable than some of the things that patients can find at a supermarket or a drugstore. And the most important thing for me about having a supplement in our practice for patients to have access to is I can know whether or not they're getting exactly what I'm prescribing. So that seems to be really helpful for my patients because they're not scouring through the aisles trying to pick up something and having that 10 minute evaluation of what type of supplement they need. So if you haven't started using MacuHealth in your practice yet, you can find all their information in the show notes and they definitely have something that is worth your patient's time and worth your patient's vision. But thanks so much guys for doing this. I uh, Everybody's excited clearly about what you did in Virginia. And Jeff, I'm not sure if you've seen this or Jerry, but but there was recently um, a question from some somebody in another state that was kind of looking at this big push. How do we make this push to get House members to vote for our bill? And my sense is that once you're there, if you don't know how those House members are going to vote, you don't know how your leadership is going to be with you or without you, you're done. You're not going to pass the bill. 
So tell us about kind of your groundwork that you laid for the last few years and what it kind of took to get to the point of being able to pass a Virginia type of bill. Yeah, well, Chris, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, if you're in the session and you're in the room with those guys and they haven't made up their mind, it's too late. You're done. And so our process started easily, seriously, four years prior to this session. Uh, we knew that we wanted to pass this laser bill and we had to, to put in the time and effort to, to make it happen. So it starts with, again, your boots in the ground, the key person structure, making sure you've got those relationships uh, with every single legislator uh, that you're going to come across, especially the ones that are going to be voting on this bill in the in the health health uh, in the health committees, uh, most likely. Um, you know, you've got to identify those potential pitfalls, those folks in the leadership that could uh, single handedly derail your your uh, legislation. And again, make sure you know if there's also friends or family members of those legislators that could derail your legislation. But uh, it, you know, we went into this knowing that we were going to win. We knew we had the votes. And if you can't go in there strongly months in advance, knowing you have the votes, you really shouldn't proceed. Yeah, but so let me this is interesting. That, I, I do want um, you to, Jeff. Uh, one of the things though I wanted to get to is, is a little meetings. bit interesting. When, um, when, we, when we had a meeting with you last time, it was before the election. And, uh, and I think your governor was sort of a surprise to most people. And Daniel and I had a conversation, I think, with both you and Jerry. And we walked away from that thinking, um, and I told Daniel, I said, this could go, this election could totally swing the other way, and they might not be ready. So what did you guys, you guys were ready, clearly. He signed it quick. Tell me about that. So we ended up having meetings with both governors, the governor, uh, both of them that were running on both sides and both of them individually came to my office we put them through laser demos in our office we showed them everything that an optometrist does and uh one of the governor candidates walked out of the room and frankly said why the f don't you guys already have lasers and the other one walked out saying this is uh, something that optometrists can do. So we felt really good about playing both sides. And you really have to play both sides of that because it was no secret. If any governor candidate wanted to look up and see where our contributions were going, they were going 50-50 down the line. And we were really trying to play both sides because you just never know. And if you put all your eggs into one basket, then, then you're done. I wanted to go back to, to say a little bit about what, what Jerry had talked about with our meetings. Every meeting that we had with our legislators for the last four years always had the statement in it. Here's what optometrists do around the country, glaucoma, diabetics, and they do lasers around the country. And so for four years, every legislator in Virginia knew that optometrists can do lasers across the country. But because of our limited scope law, we simply couldn't do them here. So it was a really big advocacy piece for us to continue to educate them about where is the top level of our education and training and what should we be doing. And, and for four years, that, that's all they ever heard. So by the time we got to the legislation, it, they already knew the answer. Yeah, I think a lot of times people think that they're going to hide something. They're going to kind of slow play this, and then it's going to sneak attack it. You know, they've done that in some states, but I, I think those days are gone. Ophthalmology is aware of it. Um, and unless you're really uh, unless you really have very strong relationships that can circumvent a lot of the negative stuff that comes along when ophthalmology gets a hold of it, then uh, you there's there's no sense in keeping a secret 
maybe the, the, the keeping the secret is when you're going to drop one of those bills. But there's no sense in keeping a secret about what your what your goals are to advance patient care in your state. Yeah, there's no doubt, Chris. We definitely had used that philosophy in the past. And and I'll go back to our orals bill in 06 or even our our TPA bill, which was pre Jerry and I. We always held it close to the chest. And in this particular case, we started our advocacy with our members literally four years ago. And we knew it was never going to be a secret to ophthalmology. And so uh, ophthalmology was making communication to our legislators. I'll say, gosh, back in, uh, in, in the summertime, they were already communicating. And so our bill wasn't going to drop till January. And here we were six months ahead of time. But we had already uh, uh, done our advocacy and educated our legislators about here's what ophthalmology is going to say. And here's what the truth is. And so we knew all of their arguments before they even started it. And we started advocating against those arguments from day one. Yeah, Chris, the the other um, thing that you lose when you try to hide this is your members don't get excited about it. And so our members had four years to ramp up and get excited about it. Of course, you know, the one thing that's critical besides the time and the relationships is the money, the, the, the contributions. And so your members aren't going to give to your pack if they don't know what you're what you're doing, what you stand for. So, um, so this, it gave us plenty of opportunity to, to, uh, talk to all of the local societies and, and pre do presentations at the state meetings, um, and always end those presentations with an ask for our PAC. Um, and so financially we went in, into this, this battle, uh, very sound. Um, and, and, uh, that's, that's the thing you have the members excited about it and it goes a long way. Plus, and I agree with everything Jeff said, um, it, it, the funny thing was the, the opposition knew about this bill months and months in advance and they started uh to to try to chip away at it um but you all saw the result and 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 how um how handily we won this how handily we won this battle even though they knew about it months and months ahead of time did you have to uh so i i feel like i was sort of out of the loop because jandra now is chair of sgrc and so and and virginia isn't one of my liaison states so i went from like being involved just as you know being a president of your association you're super involved. And then all of a sudden it's like, and, and you kind of like that for a little while. Like, I'm just going to, you know, be quiet about it. And then I hear all this. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, here it is. Great. Awesome news. So, um, yeah. so tell me, uh, talk about, I think what's good for the listeners is to hear about the types of things that ophthalmology did to try to derail it. So what sorts of things occurred both publicly and behind the doors that they were trying to make weaken the legislation, et cetera. Well, ahead, Chris, here's the, here's the beauty of, of this discussion. Everything that ophthalmology ever said to us, we knew exactly what they were going to say. The reality is, is that whether, whether you were going for it in Vermont a few years ago or Virginia today, the arguments never changed. And so we gave all of our key people what all those arguments were and our legislators what all those arguments were. What do they say? They say, you didn't go to med school. We didn't. We went to optometry school. And so we played the advocacy of what optometry school is. We never tried to do a comparison of OD to MD. We, they'll always say that uh, we didn't do a residency. Again, what we ended up doing with, and advocated for was we ended up trying to add up what are all the hours of time that you spend in optometry school? And how many patients do you see? And the numbers that we came up with, and I can share how the math works, is it's approximately 10,000 hours of training. 
20 to over 2,000 patients that you see while you're in optometry school. And so those were the numbers that we would use to advocate on our behalf. They'll say an optometrist has to retreat two and a half times compared to when an ophthalmologist treats, and that's from the JAMA 2016 article. Uh, that was easy to dissect. They'll say that they have all of the ability to see all of the patients on, uh, across the board and that patients are uh, really live close to an ophthalmologist. What we showed through that JAMA 2018 article was that really about 50% of patients live more than a half hour away from an, from an ophthalmologist. And because we outnumber them, uh, we're definitely there for advocacy. But unlike our prior battles, we didn't really talk about access to care. We didn't really push the rural parts uh, really need this. It was the first time we've ever gone for scope where we didn't really use access as the key. We really went on the merits of what is optometry training and what do we do? The last thing they'll say is that we took a weekend course and that's all we ever do. And then we continued to harp on them that you can't walk into one of these laser courses like the Oklahoma laser course and I used to always joke with them and I would put up a picture of the Tiger King and I would say, can the Tiger King walk in to a laser course and, and just take it and be done? And the answer was no. You had to have those 10,000 hours of training that helps to bolster your ability to then do this refresher course, which is what it is. A couple other things that they, that they brought up that, again, we said the exact opposite was that we would claim that these were simple procedures. And we've never said that they no. were simple in Virginia. These are complex procedures that require complex decisions. And, and we preach this to our membership day in and day out. Um, and so even during the testimony, if, you, if anybody who heard it, um, they said that, well, they said that they said, said it was simple. And we never said it was simple. The other thing that came up was, of course, the VA, the privileges in the VA for, for optometrists to perform these procedures. And so we knew that optometrists can perform these procedures within the VA system and, and get paid to perform these procedures. Um, the op op opposition did not know this, and, and they actually mm -hmm. testified to this a couple times, actually. Uh, fortunately, the legislators knew the truth. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the. I think you've hit on a lot of the things that that I've been thinking about within our within our issues in Nebraska and how to articulate those differently is because access is a is a winner for the outstate uh, legislators, but for the for the legislators where they have you know it's fifty fifty optometrist ophthalmologists in those big cities, you know it's it's not a winner for them and and it really doesn't. I mean, it's not even. I mean, it is about that. It is about it. But to your point, it's about these are these are highly precise procedures and we are highly trained professionals to manage the complications of those procedures to manage the uh, the um, utilization of those procedures and to understand the risk benefit ratio and I think those arguments I agree those are winners uh, and I don't think that's unique to your state uh, I think that um, we've won on in some states based on the rural access stuff, but I think, and I think that's important, but I think you have to know what's going to be the winner in your state. And I think that's really key. Mm -hmm. it's, Chris, it's, it's really about how you define access, right? It's, it, part of it can be that, that distance or that it, it takes a patient two hours to get to the nearest ophthalmologist. Um, the other piece of it is, you know what, there, there may be plenty of ophthalmologists around, but it still takes them four to eight weeks to get in with somebody I refer them to. And they have to take another day off of work just to, for the ophthalmologist to tell them that exactly what I told them. And then they got to go back again. So it's those multiple visits. It's the time off work. It's the trips on the bus. It's the cost 
uh, uh, and and what they're losing uh, to to have these procedures done. So that's an access issue, right? What it's a lot easier to access me the next day to do a yag yag cap, you know, than it is to wait a couple months and multiple more visits and copays. We were surprised they, they, to- they brought up the Vermont study in our state, and uh, you know, one of the key pieces that we took from the Vermont study was for ophthalmology to see all of the patients that need all of the lasers in the Vermont study, it says it takes four to eight weeks. They all could see them within four to eight weeks. And we hammered on that, uh, that there's no reason why somebody should be visually impaired driving as an elderly person on the road who could easily have a YAG capsulotomy the day after tomorrow and not have to wait four and a half weeks or eight weeks. And so we really hammered on, on, uh, that piece of the access, not, not distance, but, duration of time. Yeah. So tell me about uh, the implementation of this for your state. So what's the process? Is it now in the hands of the state board? Was it really thoroughly spelled out in the legislation or did it rely on on interpretation for regulations to be promulgated uh, from the state board and other regulatory bodies? Yeah, there's going to be a mix of both. Uh, We went into this really trying to spell out the details, but the, the one thing that did happen, the only thing that the opposition was able to um, to work with us on and compromise on was allowing the the board of optometry uh, to to spell out more of the regulatory process, and so um, initially they wanted to actually have a joint board of optometrists and ophthalmologists make these decisions, which of course quickly fell flat as soon as we opposed it, um, and they knew that they were beat. Our our patrons and the legislature came to our our uh, rescue and said, "No, that's not going to happen. Nobody thinks that's a good idea." And so, so yeah, going to the, uh, our state board is about to meet this week to, to review the legislation. And then you'll see in the coming months that they're actually going to put together the details. But we, we know it's going to look a lot like some of the other successful states, Kentucky, uh, Louisiana, Oklahoma, where, you know, yes, we're going to have to uh, prove that, that we're, we're qualified and certified to do this through, through a course like the Oklahoma course that many of us have taken. Um, and, and then, of course, beyond that, we will need to report on the on the uh, procedures that we've done, the efficacy, safety, those types of um, just more routine pr- reporting uh, items to prove patient safety and outcomes for only three years. Right. You know, I don't mind that so much. I mean, I think no. I think that on the one hand, it, you know, they don't have to do it, but uh, look, it's it's new territory for a number of states, and so. What's, you know, what's the problem? We know that this is going to be, you know, if you're reporting to the board and the board is fair, uh, then they can investigate things they think are suspicious or weird or unusual. And that's what they're for. That's what they're built for. So I don't really have that big of a problem with it as long as that system is pretty streamlined. And the other point I would make is, you know, uh, I would never, this is not real, but yeah, we could let them on our boards as long as we have equal distribution on their boards That's as well. Right. So, yep. you know, you want to bring in two ophthalmologists for a five-person board, an optometry board? Great. Well, let's bring in, you know, a, a 40% majority uh, or a 40% minority of optometrists on their boards and see how they like that. Yep. Exactly. I, I suspect that patients would be better cared for if, if we were out allowed on their boards. <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah, go ahead. It also came up a couple of times where legislators said that, well, we, re- we really shouldn't be making these decisions. And uh, we're, we're thinking, well, it, this is not the time to make that change. You know, board autonomy, is, is this, that's not up for discussion right now. And that may be something to explore in the, in the future. But again, we quickly got it back on track. Um, 
but it, it, it that opens up a whole other, other discussion, and um, we're just fortunate that it didn't go that way because, again, where it was also heading was potentially to a study uh, that was, again, going to be done by a uh, ophthalmology group that would have uh, looked like a lot look, looked a lot like the Vermont study. Yeah, I mean the the hard part for us is so in Nebraska um, we basically have a study, a mandatory study. And the real challenge is that when, you know, it's called the 407 process and it is de facto mandatory. I guess technically it's not mandatory, but uh, for any changes in scope of practice that any legislator will, because because of our unicameral system, because of our term limits, uh, they they rely on this process. And I can go talk to, a, talk to you about the history of that process and why it was created. But essentially it was created in response by medicine to in, in 1986, two optometries um, scope enhancement to include uh, therapeutics. And so, uh, so that's what they've done to slow the process down in Nebraska. So essentially what happens is for us, the real challenge is for us to get that entire piece like you all have gotten, it's really difficult because we're put through a study and we have to put, go through the study and we have to go through any time this committee is, is reviewing something if you're too broad, what happens is, and this is this is a reason to not allow this to be kicked to a study if you can avoid it. But if it's too broad, anytime you get going in one direction, yeah, I can see why YAG capsulotomies would be really good. Then left field ophthalmologists can throw just a bomb in and say, yeah, but what about this, right? And they just lob this big grenade, and then they're they're totally derailed on this other thing that may or may not even be real. Like it may not even be a part of. I remember this when we went through this in 2013. Uh, last time we we passed our scope law, uh, ophthalmology said, "Well, or or uh, what if? No, actually, it wasn't ophthalmology. It was one person, it was a lay person on the committee, and they said, well, you know, if.'" If optometrists get this authority, they're going to be able to. They're not going to be able to know the difference between people who might get chlamydia in their eye and how they have a red eye, and they would not let us respond. This committee had shut down any other input from us at that time, and we're sitting there listening to the panel, thinking we've been like, I'm, we're sitting like, hey, wait, wait, no, 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 don't say anything. We've been had the authority to do this since 1992. And they they just they got, they totally got derailed on it, and and it, they spent an entire meeting talking about not allowing anybody else to interject, talking about something that wasn't even applicable that was already in the scope of practice of optometry. So it, it just those wow. study sessions um, they are they are a political way, unfortunately, to abdicate responsibility that the legislature has to somebody else so that they can give a reason. So specifically, how did you not allow that to occur? So it, it actually happened in the very first um, Senate uh, subcommittee meeting at the very end. Um, it was the only time that they tried it. And uh, one of the senators had been put to to bring this up after the, the uh, representative for the Department of Health Professions um, recommended that, uh, that this happen. And so bottom line was because of our strong relationships within that Senate subcommittee, um, the one dentist actually on the subcommittee quickly said, yeah, we all know that uh, when, when you send something to a study, it goes there to die. This is paraphrasing, but that's essentially what they said. Um, one of our other strong senator friends quickly called for the question. They voted and we were out of there and our heads were spinning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's great. But it came back to the relationships. It did. It's about the relationships. That's how it happened. 
it's it's really I think there's a lot of people that would say it's unfortunate because we win on merit. I mean, the, the reality is the merit is there all day long. But but unfortunately, merit. I mean, this, you know, if ophthalmology is listening, they're going to take my words out of context. But unfortunately, to pass the law, merit isn't what passes the law. I mean, if, if, if it were the case that merit did, we would win all across the country tomorrow um, in terms of, mm-hmm. of, you know, optometry is safe. We're, we're, we are safe partly because we know ophthalmology is looking over our shoulder all the time. They're waiting for us to mess up. So if we mess up, they want to expose it as much as possible. Um, and so we win all day long. But the reality is, is unfortunately, bills don't pass based on merit. And I think we forget that. We forget mm-hmm. that in many states, yep. and that's why we wind up um, getting frustrated or trying to do these last-ditch efforts when the thing is never going to pass because we didn't do the hard work on the front end. Yep. So in, our, in, our, in one of our testimonies, uh, one of the ophthalmologists basically concluded his entire statement with opth- optometry simply just doesn't have the ability to do these procedures. And because of the relationship that we had, and I'll specifically say because of Jerry's relationship with his legislator, she basically lit into this ophthalmologist and said, I can't even believe the words that you're saying. Obviously, optometry can do these. They've been doing it across the country. You can't have this occurring. And we advocated for eight states because we included Indiana. You can't have eight states, 100,000 procedures going on and then also say they don't have the ability. And so... When we do talk about merit, the one thing that we always tried to do was what what you're always told. Always tell the truth. And there were so many times that the opposition was caught in a lie. And as soon as a lie came out of their mouth, we were either already there telling telling what our truth was or the the legislators already knew because we again we advocated their talking points for them. You'll appreciate this, Chris. We took literally the eight-mile philosophy and basically said, here's what they're going to say, and and here's what the truth is. So uh, it was um, it was the main reason why ophthalmology didn't show up to the last two committee hearing meetings, because they knew the beatdown had already happened. We, we heard a number of times. They in, didn't in, show up? During the testimony. No. No. It, wow. Not even a lobbyist. Wow. The, um, we heard a number of times, Chris, during the testimonies that, um, you know, that, that they trusted what we were saying. And it's, I always kind of think of this as the way, um, you know, optometry treats just our, our patients and our profession versus, again, the ophthalmologists that are listening are, are not going to be happy, but versus what happens in a medical setting. We build relationships, not only with our patients, but better ones with our, our community and with these legislators and, and our, we, you know, we thank our key persons wholeheartedly that they're the reason we get this done. Um, again, it, we can't say it enough. It's these relationships that make it happen. And when there's a question that comes up, uh, the legislators are going to trust the people to tell them the truth and have been there for them. And I do want to give a shout out to our, our main, we, we, we had several lobbyists, two that have been with us for decades. And they've built relationships uh, on trust, and they were critical. Our op- And what they'll say is, you know, historically speaking, when Virginia would go for a scope expansion, the bulk was lifted by the lobbyists. And, and this was one where the bulk was lifted by the optometrists, and the lobbyists were there with us uh, hand in hand. And so they were always there down at our General Assembly, managing those relationships, putting out the fires that would come 
Um, the, the heavy lift was by these four years of dedicated meetings in advocating for what does an optometrist do across the country. I don't think there's a better way to finish than that, actually. I think that's the, the perfect way to finish. Dr. Michaels, Dr. Nida, thanks so much for, for being on. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, thanks, Chris. Chris. We appreciate, appreciate it. it.